0: Hosea 4, the Lord's case against Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying, There is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. You make vows and you break them. You kill and steal and commit adultery. There's violence everywhere, one murder after another. That is why your land is in mourning. And everyone is wasting away, even the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea are disappearing. Don't point your finger at someone else and try to pass that blame. My complaint, you priests, is with you. So you will stumble in broad daylight, and your false prophets will fall with you in the night. And I will destroy Israel, your mother. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Since you priests refuse to know me, I refuse to recognize you as my priests. Since you have forgotten the laws of your God, I will forget to bless your children. Verse 17 19. Leave Israel alone because she is married to idolatry. When the rulers of Israel finish their drinking, off they go to find some prostitutes. They love shame more than honor, so a mighty wind will sweep them away. Their sacrifices to idols will bring them shame. Let's
1: pray. Dear Father, we, uh, we have to acknowledge, first of all, that this is a very difficult passage. It's very strange. And we ask, through your Holy Spirit, that you'd open our eyes to it. Help us also, um, help us all listen to what you want to say to us specifically. I know, Father, every day we live on grace. I live on grace and mercy and I just pray that you would give to us your grace to understand and mercy to, to move on. I pray, Father, that um, we would also change because we've been here today. And may, may what is said, number one, be true, but bring glory to Jesus Christ who deserves everything. He deserves everything. And so, Father, we love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. How are you doing today? Doing good this morning? It's nice weather, isn't it? Dan, nice weather, isn't it? It's nice weather. Well, i got to be honest with you. The last three weeks, I have been nervous, like incredibly nervous, scared out of my mind, terrified. About two weeks ago, I was looking on the news, and I saw this map, and the map showed airplane from China all over the world. Every airport is going to be infected with the coronavirus. It's terrified me, half to death. My kids at the dinner table say, Dad, somebody was coughing in my class. Is it the coronavirus? And I'm kinda, I kind of have a paranoia a little bit. Like if I go on Web Doctor and it says that you have this disease, and the way you can tell is your neck will start itching. My neck will start itching. Or you have this terminal condition and your hair will fall out and I'll see a hair in the sink. I'm dying. My poor son has the same problem. Everything is death because your arm itches. So I wanted to figure this out. So I went online and I saw really what is happening is actually they're trying to contain the coronavirus. Most of the cases are in mainland China. They've had 2,000 deaths. And so what they've done is they have quarantined any pocket that might have a little bit of the coronavirus. If you ever saw the first map I was talking about, it's like the whole world is on fire. It's the Black Plague. But basically, in the United States, it's in the orange. They have about 12 cases. Those cases have been quarantined to a camp. You have a lot more are spreading around Japan, and there's some in Italy. But for the most part, South Korea is getting a little bit of cases. It's bad, but it's, it's not the end of the world. So I, again, my paranoia goes into gear, and I say, okay, if I have it, what would it look like? So I looked up the coronavirus symptoms. And the first one is severe coughs. First service, Bertha Whitehead was coughing like, oh, see? (laughs) Scott, you were just preaching from this mic. I got the virus. (laughs) You have uh, high fevers, breathing difficulties. That's why I brought my breather to make sure. You know, and then when it gets bad, you get pneumonia where your lungs fill up with fluid And then ultimately, and this is where it really gets bad, organ failure and death. And so what I've decided to do, the first sign of a cough, I'm going to go out and buy cough syrup. I'm going to stop it. And then I'm going to go get some antibiotics and some antivirals, and that is sure to stop it. The problem is, and this is the whole problem with the coronavirus, is antibiotics and antiviral flu meds don't work. Everybody knows that. That's the reason why you have to quarantine it. That's the reason why you can't let people shake hands who have it, because it spreads and it's deadly. And if you try to cure the symptoms, it doesn't kill the disease. And so that's the axiom that we're going to play by today. If I only treat the symptoms, I will keep spreading the disease. And that's a pretty obvious thing in all of life. If you don't deal with the disease, the real cause, and you only deal with the symptoms, you're not going to take care of this situation, not at all. In fact, when they talk about the coronavirus, there's a lot of speculation what it is. Is it, is it uh, you know, the bat DNA? Is it the bacteria only for bats? Or was it engineered in a lab? They don't know. And until they figure that out, they won't find the, the shot to fix it. But in the same way, we're going to use the same axiom for what's been happening in the book of Hosea. If you remember, in the book of Hosea, the last three weeks, we've been talking about this story of a man named Hosea who met a woman named Gomer and married her. Gomer left him to prostitute herself. She had some children outside of wedlock, and she was bad. Actually, one person said, when are we going to be done talking about Gomer? I don't want to talk about Gomer anymore. Tired of it, because it is a sordid story. Well, the point of the story is to say, in the same way that Gomer left Hosea, Israel is leaving God, running from God to all these other idols. And in the same way, it reflects our heart. We have a tendency to be prone to wander from Christ. We all do. We all do. It's in us. It's a virus that's in us. And so today, we're going to now get deeper, starting in chapter 4. The prophet Hosea is going to really start digging down deep to what's going on. What's the problem? He used the metaphor one through three, but now he's going to deal with real issues, really specific issues. In today's issue, I have a feeling will hit you, it hit me. And so today, the title is Digging Deeper. If you go to Hosea chapter four, we're using ESV, we're going to just start in verse two. Because in Hosea chapter four, verse two, a virus has taken over and Israel is messed up. I don't think, you know, I mean, they're really messed up. I'm not sure we'd ever get this bad. But here's the problem. Starting in verse 2. These are the symptoms. The same way the coronavirus has symptoms, Israel has a disease, and here's the symptoms. There's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break out all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the fields. And the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea, are taken away. So, we have some symptoms. The first symptom is swearing and oath breaking. Some verses say cursing as if it's obscenities. It's not obscenities, it's promising people and breaking that oath. Promising God and breaking that oath. Actually, in one psalm, it says a righteous man keeps his oath even if it hurts. In our day and age, we'll make promises to people and break them like that. We live, once I read a story it said we live in a culture that we we make promises in the moment, but if other options come up later, we just, hey, change your mind. Second problem they had is murder. It's the hatred of people. It's wanting them out of the way, and I want to render violence to get what I want. I violate them. I violate their dignity. Stealing is part of the murder, but then you have adultery and sexual violations. Actually, it was really bad at that time. Look at verses 13 and 14. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills and under oak, poplar, terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. And I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. So what's happening is they are worshiping idols. And one of the ways they worshipped was sexual immorality with sometimes cult prostitutes, but they would go to these open fields and have sex. So you could say it like this. The problem they had was just they had a lack of sexual morals and deviant behavior, and they, weren't, they had no problem, no shame. No shame in their deviance. No shame in their perversion. And even the leaders were the ones who started it. And then it says, it went all the way down to the full brutality of life. That's why you get verses 3 and 4. It talks about how the land mourns, the animals mourn, as if God takes his blessing away from the people. Because Israel was really, God promised he'd bless their land if they were obedient because they're disobedient. He took his hand off, in chaos and chaos ensued. That's not like our culture at all. I'll, I'll read it, though, like a culture that was like this. Back in the mid-1700s, in London, England, there was a man by the name of William Wilberforce. There's a great book and movie called Amazing Grace about William Wilberforce, how he stopped the slave trade. But it talks about the British culture at that time was a religious culture. They claimed to be Christ, but they didn't believe it. It didn't go into them. It just was part of their culture. And around them, everything was decaying, all the way from the British aristocracy. It says they're extremely rich, and a writer says that they were exquisitely selfish, and they gave no thought to the conditions of those below them, which they had no regard for the poor, and they had party after party after party. King George, the leader at that time, had sons, and his oldest son, the Prince of Wales, his greatest accomplishment was that he bedded 7,000 women. In the actual neighborhoods of the poor that says their drink of choice was gin, and mothers would basically neglect their children to get that gin and sell themselves for the gin. One writer says it's sort of like the opioid epidemic in our own culture. They said there was vulgarity after vulgarity. Public hangings were popular for almost any kind of crime, even petty thievery. They would hang people. And the Aristocrats thought it was a good idea because it kept them entertained. And then, when there were no human executions to witness, they said a this writer says a taste for the grotesque spectacle was satisfied by choosing from among every imaginable way of cruelty to animals. They would put bulls and oxes in the middle of a ring and put pepper in their nose and send bulldogs to grab them, and people would bet on them, and it'd be hilarious. They just used animals and the cruelty of animals for their entertainment. And then it says, brothels were abundant. The average age of a prostitute in London was 16, and there were brothels that were even 14 years old. was normal. And this is the culture back in the 1700s, but I don't think, you know, like Israel and that culture is nothing like today. So what's the, what, how do we fix this? How do we normally fix this? Because these are the symptoms of the problem, and the way we normally fix this is a normal inclination, in the same way with the coronavirus, let's fix the cough, so let's find some cough medicine. We look for ways society can force change. And so we try to have a top-down approach where we institute laws, behavior patterns. This was really big in the early 1800s in America and also Britain in and Ontario, and it was called the Blue Laws. It's called moralism. Moralism is with a conditioning behavior to make sure people behave the way you want them to behave. Actually, it's interesting. I found this um, this newspaper. This was printed in Canada back in the 1830s, and they were called Sunday Laws, and it prohibited everything on Sunday. You were not allowed to work, fix Machines, no farm work, no seeding, no harvesting, no railway work, businesses, you weren't allowed to make contracts, buy, sell, you weren't allowed to smoke cigars, you weren't allowed to deliver newspapers. And then the third point is no games, races, or other sports for entertainment on Sunday. So you weren't allowed amusement or entertainment. So that means every Lions fan in here is a sinner. Cleveland Browns fans gave it up a long time ago because we know we don't, we don't win, so we just stay in church all day Sunday. <laughs> so you're not allowed to bet. Then it says all excursions for entertainment, pleasure, trains, steamers, other conveyance, you weren't allowed to go on. That's point four. No advertising, not allowed to advertise. And then uh, what's interesting, number seven, no gambling, tippling. Tippling is you're not allowed to take a little drink of alcohol. That's called tippling. On Sunday, you weren't allowed to use profane language. Monday through Saturday, go right ahead. Not Sunday. Not Sunday. All public meetings were canceled except for churches. And then number nine, no hunting. This is a tough one for Jared Doty. No hunting, shooting, fishing, and bathing in a public place in the site of public worship. So when we have our baptisms in the park, you'll see Jared go out there early. That's sin. And then on the very bottom, the penalty... For each of these actions, from $5 to $25, and that was instituted, and the purpose was to make people moral. It's outside, so it really has three conditions. It's outward pressure to conform. Churches are great at this, especially churches in the early 1900s. You better dress right. You can't, you know, not wear a suit, tie. Women wear dresses. And then if the outward pressure with law doesn't work, you use contempt, judgment, shame. And then you ostracize. It's a powerful tool to to cause behavior the way you want it. The problem with this is the people who are the most behaved become the exalted righteous, those who are the best. Those who are the... Great examples of what true moralism is because what matters is how good you do things. And then ultimately, and here's where it's crazy, is you can only maintain outward pressure for so long till you're just tired out and you get rid of the laws. Like when I read these Sunday laws, this used to be common in the United States. In fact, in the town I come from, Cleveland, Ohio, we have this park called Cahoon Park. And a lady who donated the park made sure that nobody was allowed to play go to the playground, and even play basketball in the park on a Sunday. So I can remember as a 10-year-old, I was just shooting hoops. It was right across my house. I was shooting hoops just in my shorts and a T-shirt, and a police officer kicked me off from shooting hoops. And I'm like, why? Well, it's in the laws. It's a code book. If she's going to donate this, you all need to be moral. And the problem with this is often these rules are given to people whose hearts could care less. And then what happens after the second generation, third generation, they just throw all the rules out. That's why a lot of people left our kind of churches. Their kids don't ever come back. Because parents are sometimes really good at looking good on Sunday but going home. And is there joy in this? There's really no joy in this. It's a lot of stones thrown. And I think we all have that tendency. That's the failure of moralism because moralism is only dealing with the symptoms. So we need to go deeper. The same way with coronavirus, we better see what's causing it, to, so we can deal with it. What is causing all of this problem in Israel? Well, there's there's a deeper problem going on, and the deeper problem is found in verse one. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. What's the issue? They don't know God. It's about relationship before law. That's the whole problem with legalism. Legalism is moralism, imposed laws without reason. Why should I do this? Is that why God made you? So you can be perfect and walk around and make sure you do all the laws right? Or did God make you because he wants you? What's really interesting in, in verse 4, um, no one let no one contend, let no one accuse, for with you is contention. In the NLT... Verse 4 says, don't point your finger at someone else and try to pass the blame. That's what moralism does. If I can make it, then I can point the finger. This is saying, no, priest, basically, he's going to talk to the priests here, the leaders. But to all of us, start down here. And when you're with God, when you know God, you get exposed. When you know God, you see yourself. And you realize, I am a man of unclean lips, living with a people of unclean lips because I've seen the Almighty. Real quickly, it's very interesting because if you look in verse 2, verse 2 really is a reversal of the Ten Commandments. It's a reversal of thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain, swearing, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, but they do just the opposite. Thou shalt not commit adultery, And then as a result, God's blessing is taken off of him and he curses the land. So it's a reversal of the law of Moses, really. When you read the law of Moses, you can follow with me, but I'll go through it real quick. If you turn to Exodus 19, I want to show you right before Moses received the law, what was the purpose of it? It's fascinating. The purpose of it isn't to be do, do. the purpose is to, because God wants to know us. Exodus 19 verse 4 through 6 he's giving Moses the reason why he needs to go to Sinai and get the tablets the 10 commandments and he says in exodus 19:4 you yourselves have seen what I did to the egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself that's where he begins i carried you cuz i love you now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. I want you. And, you know, then he says, and everything on earth is mine, and I'll give it to you. I just, I want to take care of you. This is a relationship. He's, he's reaching in relationship. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to Israel. So God says this to Moses, and Moses says this to Israel. Then Israel in verse... 8 says, hey, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So what they hear is God says, I want you. All they hear is "I'll just tell me what to do and I'll do it. It's kind of a separ- separating him. Just tell me what to do and we'll be fine. And it keeps going. In verse 3, Moses, there's flashes of lightning and they're next to the mountain. And Moses said in verse 19 of, I'm sorry, Exodus 20, verse 19, You speak to us, the people said, and we'll listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. So the people said, Moses, you deal with God. Don't let him talk to us. Just you. You deal with him. So more separation. Just tell us what to do. That happens, actually, if you go to chapter 24, they say it again in verse 3. The people say with one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken to us, we will do. It's an issue of doing. It's moralism, moralism. But Moses himself in chapter 33, watch this in verse 11. Exodus 33:11, the Lord used to, uh, used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend when Moses turned again into the camp. So Moses spoke to God as a friend. And in Exodus 33:18, 18, and because Moses was God's friend, all he wanted to do, he says, please, He's talking to God, please show me your glory. The difference between Moses and the people is Moses just, the people just said, tell us what to do. Moses said, God, I want to know you. I want to know you. And I would say this, the moment you start seeing your life as a set of rules, you probably have lost God. The moment you start seeing other people and how they failed, you probably have forgotten how you failed in the sight of God. And we always have to be brought back to that because I would say all of us, even me, have a tendency to judge. It's in us. And what happened here at this time, if we go back to Hosea 4, the people who were supposed to, to bring people to God The priests, the teachers, they didn't. So you can say here in verse 4, "'Yet let no one contend, and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priests. You shall stumble by day, and the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you've rejected knowledge.'" He's talking to the people who are supposed to teach. "'I reject you from being a priest to me, and since you have forgotten the law of your God, I'll also forget your children.'" At this day and age, God would speak to the people through the priest. They are given knowledge of God, and they have the responsibility to give out the knowledge of God. Did you now know we, no, we are priests, all of us, called the priesthood of believers? You are given the knowledge of God through the Holy Spirit. You are responsible to give it out. In this day, they didn't care. They basically started running after the culture. Around them instead of following God. And because of that, because of that, the priests didn't teach by day and the prophets didn't teach by night. The way I like to take that by day is when it's easy, when it's bright, when it's daytime, when we can, we need to teach. That's why we try even in our church to have regular you know, Sunday services and in Bible studies and ladies' if gatherings and try to tell you to keep doing these devotions at home because you can. We have free worship now. It's amazing. We are worshiping God by day. We need to teach him by day. A prophet, though, at this time was stumbling by night. A prophet's job is when you see things in the culture shifting badly, you need to stand up and say something. These people weren't. They're, it's called the watchmen on the wall. They are supposed to see any enemies encroaching at night and they're supposed to say, hey, everybody, they're coming. And the prophets at this day would see the change in culture and not say a word, not say anything, because they want to be liked. So the problem with this, the problem with this is they've forgotten the laws of God. They forgot this. We have, there's two kinds of books, the way theologians say it. There's called the book of works, which is God's creation. Every day his creation is screaming his name in the skies. Day after day they pour forth speech. It's his works. It's, he also uses logic, common sense, what you see in nature. But then there's the book of his word, which is special revelation. This is how you know him. I had a I had a teacher at Moody who was uh, this old guy, had a gray beard, he looked like a philosopher, you know, no, no hair on his head, little glasses, and he'd walk in the class like this, kind of old, and he'd look to the ground, you know, some guys that really think a lot, look to the ground, you know, and he and talked like this, and he said, most days, most days I feel like I'm an atheist. I don't know if I believe anything. He says, but you know what I do? I grab a cup of coffee and I open up the Gospels and I read about Jesus and I believe again. We need to read about Jesus. We need to know Jesus. But the problem is the people at this time didn't want God, so what happened to them is they exchanged him. So they got rid of him. They didn't want them. So what do they have? They've got, according to Romans, they suppress knowledge. And a lot of people do this. If you don't really take the living God, learn about him, you're going to then fall for any other God. And in this case, they descended into idolatry. Here's how you can tell when you descend into idolatry. Number one is you gain wisdom from wood or made up things. You start believing anything. In this case, if you look at Verse uh, 12, Hosea verse 12, 4, 12, my people, and this is supposed to be ironically funny, but this is how dense they are, my people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. So they make an idol out of wood. They made it, but they go to that to give them information. It's kind of crazy. It's called an idol. When you exchange, get rid of God, the true God, all you have left is made up things. We have two idols in our day, I think. I think our culture has two idols. I think the first idol is money. If you you have money, you can get anything you want that God provides for you. If I have enough money, I don't need to pray. The other idol I'd say is tolerance. It's, It's the God of love. Not just, like, what I mean by love is tolerant love. And the reason why is I can do whatever I want, and God still loves me, and you have no right to judge me. Those are two idols, and we are buying into it. When you're an idolater, when you have the false idol, they can never give you satisfaction. Look at verses 10 and 11. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, wine which take away the understanding, and that's why they go to this piece of wood. And the idea is, verse 10, they're not satisfied because truly the only thing that satisfies is the true living God. When the living God, when you believe in the living God, what happens is the Holy Spirit lives in you. He dwells in you. Even when times are hard, he gives you the ability to hope by his word and faith. But when you don't have him, you've got to scramble to find hope. So some people scramble to alcohol, and they keep drinking and drinking. And if that's not enough, they go to heavier drugs. But it's em- you're empty. You'll never be satisfied. Some people go to sex, and the problem with sex is it doesn't satisfy. So what people do is they invent new modes of it. And they'll start claiming different kind of genders so they can experiment with other things but it never satisfies. 2 Corinthians Corinthians 4, 7 says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. So we are jars of clay. So we're like a broken piece of pottery. And if you pour God in there, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He will keep it together. But if you pour other things in there, we're cracked and they fall out. So you got to keep filling. And they never hold. And people try everything, and it's not satisfying. And then here's the problem, is because it's not satisfying, they, they're so hungry that it warps their morals. So they're going to try anything, and so they change the laws to let anything. And that's what's happening now, as laws are being changed to let anything. Look at verse 7. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. It's, I'm going to embarrass them. Evils, Isaiah 5.5 5 says, they will evil becomes good and good becomes evil. Hunger warps morals. And I already read what they did in 13 and 14. So when you don't have God, you've got to go for something else. And that something else never satisfies. One of, my, one of my favorite stories of miracles is when Jesus uh, multiplied the loaves and fishes and it says he multiplied the loaves and fishes and after they ate, they were satisfied. So thinking through this, and I want to apply it just on a basic level, and I'd say this. People are not in hell. People don't go to hell because they've sinned. because they've rejected Jesus there is this idea that I will live eternally if I do more good than bad that's moralism I've been a better person than you know that person over there's not as bad as Hitler so they should go in but the problem is the criteria to get into heaven isn't if you're good or bad in fact we're all bad romans 1132 says God gives all men over disobedience so he can have mercy on them all like look i, I I'm a failure I'm a sinner I'm a fool and it's still true but I got to tell you the reason I know the reason I know i am I'm a citizen of heaven is because Jesus said, it's finished, Chris. It's finished. Moralism, it's never finished. I've always got to do better. But here's the deal. This is the beautiful part. When it's finished, when it's finished, I will want to be moral. (laughs) It's not I have to be. I will want to be. Because I love him. I love him. It's sort of like this. The way you can tell. The way you can tell somebody has the flu or a sickness is they cough. Coughing is a symptom of the flu. Obedience to the word of God is a symptom of love for God. If you love your mom and your mom asks you to do something, you'll do it because you love her. Moralism's killing us. You need to go to the source, to know God. I mean, to really know God, to embrace Him by faith, to walk with Him in grace. And then we start becoming the people we were meant to be. I'm going to close this in prayer, and the choir is going to sing a perfect song with regards to that, to meditate on it. I want you to think about your own life. I want to think, have you, are you somebody always trying to do good? After the first service, somebody came up to me and said their sister always is ashamed because she always fails. And she says, God won't want, God will have nothing to do with me because I fail all the time. And that's just the, that's moralism. We're talking about grace.